This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ray Cairns, welcome to Better Reading. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. Oh, very excited about this chat. Uh, let me introduce you. Ray writes crime with heart. Uh, they're thrillers featuring everyday people facing extraordinary circumstances. Her debut novel, The Good Mother, was shortlisted for Best Debut Crime Fiction in 21, Ned Kelly Awards and longlisted for the 21 Sisters in Crime Awards. And she draws on her background as a youth worker in Northern Ireland during the final years of the Troubles. Ray has also also co-managed a crisis refuge for street children, worked as a program director for the Sydney Olympic Youth Camp and holds a degree in performing arts. This is Ray's second novel, Dying to Know. It's a standalone Sydney-based thriller and it centres around a woman's determination to uncover what happened to her missing sister. Do you know, when I read authors' biographies and when I introduce them, it always makes me feel so inadequate because you guys do so much. (laughs) I just think for me, I'm just interested in a lot of different areas and um, my performing arts degree began when I was 18 months old. So I kind of had that as a kid really and then I did my performing arts degree and went, oh, I don't think I want to do this anymore. (laughs) So that was when I changed course and, and went into youth work and aid work. Yeah, and what was that like, youth work and aid work? That can't be easy. Um, look, I was so naive. So I um, I finished my degree. I decided I didn't want to perform anymore and I wanted to go, you know, naively go over and do aid work and fix the world and I thought I could do all sorts of stuff and I learned very quickly that I couldn't. Um, and I applied to international volunteers abroad and they said, oh, well, we need to send you to a, um, a first world country first. So they sent me to Belfast in the middle of the Troubles. <laughs> And, um, I wondered edu- what the connection was with Ireland. Yeah, right. Yes, yeah, so, I, um, I went there and I used music and drama, um, and I took kids from the Protestant and Catholic paramilitaries, so the IRA and the UVF, away on camps together. Wow! And just to the idea was to kind of break down the barriers because quite often the two sides were so separated they never met anyone from the other side until adulthood and even sometimes not then. So the idea was to just kind of let them see that they were as human as each other, I guess. So it was an amazing, I was there for a year, I saw all sorts of things and met all sorts of people and learned It's really been thrown into at the deep end, isn't it? Yeah. It absolutely was. But I was yeah. in my 20s and you just kind of roll with it, you yeah. know. And um, were people open to it? Were these kids open to discovering about so each kid, other? The kids' parents sent them to the camps because they wanted a break in the holidays, essentially, and the kids would turn up and they would stand in opposite corners with their backs mm. to each other. There's no way my parents have told me not to talk to them. And, of course, kids being kids, by the end yeah. of the week they were best mates, arms around each other, but when their parents picked them up, 
they had to pretend they didn't know each other again. Um, but we got them together like once a week through term and and did you know, games nights and whatever with them. Um, so they still kept those friendships. But it was really sad. They couldn't kind of share them with yeah. their parents. And then the parents inevitably had issues about favouritism. And and because they didn't get the same opportunities to discover no. about each other. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and they'd grown up in the absolute thick of the troubles in the 80s. Yeah. And they'd had, their parents had had things happen to them. And, and I, it's, there's so much generational trauma there. Mm. So I... I was there for a few weeks on a camp and then I was offered a job through the European Union back there. So I went back and, and yeah, had the year there and then came home and um, that was when I ran a refuge for street kids here. Uh, I just want one question about Ireland again. Do you think being Australian helped you to be neutral with these children? 100%. Oh, 100%. Okay. They would say to me, are you Catholic or Protestant? What, yeah. what they would actually do is ask me 10 questions. There are, you know, the, your last yeah. name, your middle name, your where you were yeah. born, all those things. And by the end of the 10, they couldn't figure out whether I was Protestant or Catholic. So eventually one of them would get enough you know, guts to ask me. And I'd say, well, in the context in which you're asking me, I'm Australian. Yeah. Because that's your nationality. It was it yeah. was really, and I think the only thing, like I went over there thinking, like I said, I could save the world, but the, the only thing I really did was open their eyes that there were other ways to live in. And yeah. that, and I, I am very aware how fortunate I am to live in Australia. Um, my experience in Australia has been amazing. I am very aware that other people's hasn't and that they've had other, you know, mm-hmm. horrific things to deal with. But I was able to kind of say, well, I don't know what my army looks like. I've never seen the army. I've never mm. seen a gun. I've never seen a tank. Um, yeah, I don't have to think about bombs going off. Mm. And it was that. And I didn't also the other thing is I didn't know the religion of my friends. Mm. So I was able to have those kind of conversations with them. And that was that that really um, helped inform the book as well. Mm. Yeah, so I used a lot of those experiences in my first book. Mm. I just want to uh, just a little bit before we we go into the refuge centres. But I um I was recently travelling and I was in Mexico, ah. and I was travelling with an American friend of mine, uh, and we were walking down the road um, in a city called Puebla, and there were these people collecting um you know those armor guards collecting yes. money. Right. Um, And so that's all it was. It wasn't something crazy or dangerous. Well, it could be dangerous, I guess, but it was, (laughs) yeah, it was, you know, somebody doing their job. However, they had their guns out. And as they were loading whatever they were loading, they were doing it with a loose gun in their hand. And it freaked me out. I mean, I was so shocked to see guns used in that way. And my American friend just turned around and looked at me. He's like, what's wrong? I said, I, 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 I mean, I was full of fear. It was, it, yeah. I froze in fear because yeah. we don't see guns like that. No. I mean, and they being a holster. You get a fright reaction, don't you? That's or, what I did. freeze. Like it's just, yeah. Do you know, and I almost burst into tears. I was really frightened because our armor guards do have guns, I'm sure. I don't know. I've never even noticed it. But they would be in a holster. You wouldn't be yeah. holding it while you're carrying a box, or which yeah. is what they were doing. And he said, you Australians, because he's American, you Australians, you're just not used to guns. No. And none of us should oh, and be. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. And none of us should be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I had I had over there. I had because I was taking the kids on walks and stuff, and because where I was working is Cross McGlen, and it's a, there's a huge army base there, and there was it was an IRA kind 
kind of it's called bandit country. It is the hold of the IRA, and it's still. I, I think possibly has some of that. But they would train their guns on us. They would kneel and actually train their gun on me as I crossed mm. the square and stuff. And I'd just be like, what on earth? It's mm. it's um, yeah, it, it was such a weird experience. And these were, you know, big automatic machine guns and stuff. And the helicopters, I'm still not great with helicopters. If a helicopter flies overhead at mm. home, I still get that rush of fear mm. from it because they did used to like put a um a light on you as you went down the street and follow you down the street and just this hovering helicopter above you and stuff. So mm, it's a, it was a very, I can't fathom growing up under that. Mm. Okay, hard. so then you came back to Australia and you set up a refuge? Oh, I didn't set it up. I um, went in as a youth worker and yeah. then ended up managing the refuge for a couple of years um, and it was, for the, it was for street kids and it was for the kids that had been rejected from every other refuge. So we were... Dealing wow. with the kids who who had uh, pretty major drug addictions or had pretty major um, legal issues that the other refuges weren't prepared to take on. So it had a very high burnout rate, the refuge. Mm-hmm. I think it was about six months and I think I was there for two years. It was, <gasps> wow. it was an incredible experience and I feel very fortunate to have been allowed into the children's lives in the way in which I was um, and advocate for them. But it was towards the end it was just excruciating I lost a boy who I had I had got him out I had got he had a job he had a girlfriend he was living very productively and and then he got on a bus one day and met his old dealer who gave him a a shot and that was Mm. it he died so I went to his funeral and that was when I went okay that's Mm. enough for now Mm. for me um and that was when I was offered a job with the youth camp at the Olympics with people I had traveled with years ago when I was um, performing, I did some performing in America and Europe and one of them was running the youth Olympic youth camp. So we had 400 teenagers from all the countries in the world turn up and we had them for three weeks and we took them we took them up to the Barrier Reef, we took them into an Indigenous community, we took them, did environmental days with them, we did all sorts of things, lots of drama, lots of music. Or- Were they athletes? Um, each country gets to send two children and they oh. get to choose what the criteria is. So in Australia it's an essay competition um, and the same in America I think, but then in some of the other countries it's their that. It, they're trying to give them a feel for what the Olympics will be like when they compete at the next Olympics. So oh, it was wow. a real mix. And they got to go to the opening ceremony and we went to a couple of days of events. So, so, so lucky. Like that part of it was amazing. But I was like camp counsellor. So it was uh, very full on. We had the whole gamut of, you know, the countries that the kids whose parents can pay for them to go, very, very wealthy through to the very, very poor. So at that time um, my mom. I think this is right. It was called Burma, and and there, were, there was a girl there who had not, had never worn shoes. So we oh, had this wow. real um, gap between the kids, and trying to explain how they treated each other would have impacts when they went home, and for some of them, very serious impacts was was my job. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, um, did they? Um, how did the poorer kids get funded? Um, the All the kids. Oh, right, absolutely. So they were great. Yeah. But they, they did. They literally, some of them was the first time they'd had new clothes and and, and then they turned up and they were staying. We we were housed in um, a private school in Sydney, so you can imagine it was oh. just, and they got three meals a day, which they yeah. weren't used to. So they, some of them were, were um, really struggling with going home actually mm. at the end of it because they, mm. they'd seen a different way of life. 
Yeah, mm. but it was an amazing, and, and it happens every Olympics. It's part of the Olympic charter. Yeah. Um, mm. Every country has to put do an Olympic youth camp. Mm. And do you feel on a personal level that you've got some trauma post, you know, like? I would you- say definitely from Northern Ireland. Yeah. yeah. It's it's bizarre having written The Good Mother and talked about it so much because I, I came home. I was fine when I was over there, but when yeah. I came home was when I hit the trauma and I just boxed it all up, put everything literally under my bed. Um, the first time my mother heard any of my stories about Northern Ireland was 15 years later when I'd written the book and I was having to talk about it. And and she was just horrified, She you know, because I hadn't shared them with her. Um, so, yeah, I do, but I feel that I've worked through a lot of that and I don't know, I think sometimes some of the toughest things that we have happening in life give us empathy for other people mm-hmm. and I think that that's possibly what draws me to writing. Is that Yeah, and they fall. they form our lives, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, and who we are now as adults. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I went to a school um, uh, at Glebe, a primary school in Glebe, and, you know, that was so mixed and there were so many children with, you know, so many problems. It was inner city Sydney at the time and, Mm. you know, they weren't desirable places to live. No, Glebe wasn't (laughs) the place it is now. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Um, And you did come across all of that and I would remember, I feel that, you know, I'm a person that really feels other people and I've got a strong, uh, I don't know if you can say sense of empathy, but I I certainly have something and I wear my heart on the sleeves and sometimes I couldn't let go of the angst of what I thought those kids were facing when they went home. That was something that I was aware of as a child, you know, because we were so lucky. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But anyway, that forms who you are as adults. So how does the the writing career, I mean, how did that all come about then? So the stories from Northern Ireland kind of stayed with me and um, I had actually had a very, very brief relationship with a a guy who um, turned out to be in a paramilitary organisation and that idea of those what-ifs stayed with me. So when my kids went off to high school, I went, okay, I've got some time. I'm going to just sit down and write. And I thought I was going to write a screenplay, but it came out as a as a, a novel. And then I was lucky enough to get uh, Mark Lamprell, who's a, a writer, producer, director, read it. And he said to me, well, it's a great story, great characters, but you need to um, get your writing skills. <laughs> He said it in a much nicer way than that, but I need I needed to learn how to write essentially. So I did a year-long mentorship with Catherine Heyman and she really put me through my paces. It was um it was like boot camp and it was amazing. I want to ask you a question. So you hadn't written much in your career when you decided to be a writer. Did you think I could sit down? and I'm not being judgmental here because no. it works differently for everybody, but did you think, okay, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to start to write a novel. I don't know anything about writing novels, but I want to tell a story. Like I, how how did the thought start? I'd done a couple of courses. Oh, um, okay. I'd always, I'd always written yeah. poetry. I'd always um, been a storyteller. I mean, acting is very much getting into characters' heads and you write backstory and you do all of that stuff that helps you be a better uh, performer. So I guess I kind of had that. And my mum's a psychologist. So I had all of the, we always talked about the psychology of people and trying to understand why people do what they do. So I had all of that, but the actual basic writing skills, 
other than my schooling and obviously my university education, I, I, I needed to learn how to do that. And that was what Catherine Heyman beautifully did. Gosh, she's so talented. Mm-hmm. And and she we went through the manuscript 10,000 words at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You know, each time she built. So it started with how to set out a manuscript. I mean, I didn't even know how to do that. Um, and at that point, I don't know that I wasn't, I guess I wanted to get, I had in my head, oh, maybe it'd be lovely to be published. But for me, it was about that story. I just needed to get that story out. So the story came first. Yeah, and I think that was why I thought I'd do a screenplay because I thought I had more ability in that area because I'd done so much performing. But it came out as a novel. And then so Catherine and I went through it for a year and then that the end product of that got me an agent. And that was amazing and it was exciting and she thought there'd be a bidding war and um, she put it out to publishers and it was absolute crickets. There was not one bit of interest and she didn't really know what to do next. I knew the manuscript needed more work. So I took it back and I uh, worked on so it. So the agent didn't know what to do next? Not really. Um, no. She she wanted a publisher to pick it up and then kind of go through the process with them. So I took it back and I, I really worked on it and I, I'm in an amazing writing group and they helped me and my mentors helped me and gave me feedback. And the result of, of that was I got another agent and she pitched it to publishers again, all very exciting. And there were a couple of nibbles this time, but it, it didn't get over the line. And then I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and gosh. I had a really bad reaction to a prescription drug and my hair fell out. And oh, I was no. out of hospital and I couldn't, I couldn't string, I, I couldn't speak a sentence, let alone write one. Like I was, um, it, for two years, it was really tough. Um, and then we found the right medication and um, I felt ready to write again. And I rang my agent and said, right, I'm ready to go. And she said, I'm so sorry, Ray, I'm closing my agency. And that was my moment of, mm. I think the universe is really trying to tell me something here. Yeah. But this is where the, the people that surround you in life, they stepped in. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I had my mentors go, no, this is, this is worthy. And I had my writing group and other writing friends um, and, and colleagues say, no, 
give it, go for this, you know, keep going. Um, so that was when I made the decision to self-publish, um, but I wanted it to be able to sit on a, pa- a shelf and not be able to tell the difference. So I had it professionally cover designed. And I didn't know you'd done that. That wasn't yeah, in your so biography. I had yeah, professionally edited, and that was the version that actually got shortlisted for the Ned Kellys. So wow. it was my self-published version, which I'm really proud of because I didn't Absolutely. even know that. Absolutely, <laughs> and to be shortlisted, so you knew to enter it. Yeah, well, so I can't actually, a few people have asked me this, I don't yeah. actually remember how I went about entering it. Someone must have mentioned it to me, but I, I, yeah. it wasn't even on my radar. I released it December 2020 and then in February 2021, Belinda. So all during COVID. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, well, <laughs> talk um, about obstacles. I know. It really, look, it was, but it, it, again, it came back to, I, I worked really hard. The people surrounded me. And I knew that that you had to keep getting better and better. It was I never stopped, like keep working. Because it's it. practice. It is. It is. And so all I did was kept practicing on the same book because I knew it had value. Yeah. The story. So I just had to keep working. I mean, there's a gazillion versions of that novel. I released it December 2020, and then in February 2021, I got a, a phone call from Belinda Audiobooks, and a vision impaired lady had sent them my book. And they offered me a contract for the audiobook. So that was like, wow, I'm I'm hybrid now. I was so excited. I lo- we love them. They're great. And oh, they're also they're sponsors just... of this podcast. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're amazing. I was they just are. they were so amazing to work with. And what an incredible company to take a risk on me. And and this was before I was shortlisted. So this was, you know, they just read the book and went, We love it. We want to work with you. So they and thank you to that reader. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, trust me, I have well and truly thanked her. Um, what a beautiful, gorgeous thing to do for me. Yeah, um, so generous. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky with the response to the self-published version. It managed to get into a couple of papers and got some good reviews. So all those things kind of gave it a bit more word of mouth. Then then you, would not, you wouldn't always get that in self-publishing. It's quite hard to get the distribution and the... the, the it's the distribution and the discovery. That's the yeah, challenge. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that came out in June 2021 and then I was shortlisted for the award in July 2021 and that was when everything changed. I got an agent within two weeks and a week later I had the two-book deal with HarperCollins. Wow. What a story. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, a marathon. <laughs> yeah. But you were right. There was something there because you don't win awards if the story's not strong and the writing's not strong. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And I always say to people that are aspiring writers like yourself, although you don't need any advice, is enter competitions because yeah, that's how you know. Yeah, it really is a discipline that that you should stick to. Find out every competition, about every competition that's out there and just enter because yeah, it is really, awesome. you know, you, you're getting kind of aggregated in a way. Can I go back and talk about your illness and the two years that, because I want to know how that, Again, you know, that must influence uh, your writing as well. Yeah, look, I think it does. Again, it comes back to it gave me an insight into people with chronic illness. It gave me a... Talk to me about it. How did it? How did you know? How does it transpire? Um, so I broke my finger and right. I'd never broken anything before and that set, apparently set off the, the... Obviously had the gene and it set it off in my body, so... It was a trigger. I got the mirror, which is the thing with rheumatoid arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis is a... A chronic illness, it, it, it 
It it's quite your immune system. It's an autoimmune yeah. disease. So it attacks your your body attacks itself essentially. And it happens usually around the joints, but it can also do your eyes. So it does get go for my eyes and you can go for your lungs and your heart as well. So it, if it gets bad, it can get really um, debilitating. Um, and it's all about the medication. So they can't cure it. It's just about managing it. So I still get flares and what and and co- trying to deal with COVID and the autoimmune disease yeah. has been very challenging, but we we I'm getting there now. And those two years, I just it was like I wasn't myself anymore. Like all yeah. the things that I, I'm very independent. I had to learn how to do things. I had to learn to write differently after it. Like I can't. See, so my first novel I hand wrote and then I put it into the computer. Uh, this novel I had to, dying to know I had to um, use speech to text for the first draft because I just couldn't, my joints won't let me sit down and type for that long. Yeah, um, wow. So, yeah, I had to train my brain in a different way of telling a story, which was really interesting because it ended up my first draft was very dialogue heavy, which was fun and great to work with. So the second draft was all about weaving in the, the setting and all that. Um, but it's about... I guess, you know, changing direction and learning how to manage and, and accepting it. For for many, for quite a while, I think I was really fighting it, kind of going, no, I don't have this and or I'm going to beat it kind of thing. And and it was that acceptance when I started to be able to work better in life when, once I accepted that I was going to have to live with this and, and that I had to find ways to manage it. And, I, again, I have an amazingly supportive family, um, my friends, hmm. my my community. I'm, I'm that that is what got me through that. During those times, did you think about telling stories? Were you having that I same stories? No, it just wasn't well enough. Like I, no, it's actually the the only good thing for me to come out of COVID is people understand what brain fog is. So, and that's yeah. what I get. That's the worst. That's the thing I hate the most in yeah. uh, with having rheumatoid arthritis because say even with an interview like this sometimes I haven't got um, word recall that I would usually have or I lose my train of thought if I'm flaring I can I can find it very difficult to to get the words out of my head but now people understand what brain fog is I'm able to kind of go oh look <laughs> this is kind of what's happening today I think that was part I couldn't even read Mm. That was killer for me. I've read mm. since, I mean, I was that kid under the doona, you know, mm. two in the morning with a torch on. <laughs> and did you turn to audiobooks? Were they, did that I help? concentrate on story. No. Yeah. I just, wow. even TV, which, you know, I, I, I just, it was a really difficult time. I felt, na- I had to do a lot of, we went for drives into nature and I just spent time, especially near yeah. the beach. I mean, which is interesting because in dying to know I've said it near a beach and I wonder yeah. if that kind of came out because of, it was a real place of making, it made me feel better, I guess. Yeah. It, it You're so incredible, Ray, that you've had so many challenges, I guess, and, to ha- and that is such a big one. And you still come out with a book that wins, you know, a ton of awards. <laughs> you get a publisher and you're just releasing your second book. I mean, it's it's a huge accomplishment. No, I think I think I think everybody's dealing with things in life. Yeah, just yeah, sure. Talking about it as opposed yeah. to you know but maybe I, we don't produce as much as you do. Oh, I don't know. Have a look at your podcast and better read. I think you've done really well, Cheryl. Was it challenging writing a second book after the success of the first? Were you nervous? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I had that little 
the difference is in the first book, you just had that creative freedom. You just yeah. putting it on a page. You don't even, when I was writing the first draft, it wasn't even in my head to get published. It was just get the story out and enjoy it and no expectations of myself. Um, the second book was very much, was that a fluke for a start? But also just, just the, every word I wrote for a while, I got critical and, oh my gosh, and this is not going to go that way. And because I don't, I don't plot. I do a heap of research, so I did a heap of research for this book as well, um, and that kind of underpins the story for me. And then I sit down and write in chronological order, and I find the plot out along with everybody else, like a, a, like as a yeah, it, I, it's a discovery, and I love it. And I, I wanted to be able to be a plotter, but now I, I'm actually embracing writing that way. And it, I do a lot of research, like in yeah. this book. So dying to know, um, I knew about the motorcycle gangs and how it had spilled onto the streets of Sydney, you know, Milpera and all of the massacre and and the airport brawl and stuff. But I wanted to know more and I read biographies by the police, like police officers and also by gang members. But I also got on the back of my husband's bike and we went to Biker Haunts and we just hung out there and um, essentially spoke to anybody that would give me the time of day and drew stories out of them. So I spoke to weekend bikers like us and and I also spoke to people who were really much more in the life of um, the, the bike and the motorcycle life and then those that had kind of dipped their toe in the waters of the outlaw scene and then I got really lucky. I struck gold. I um, got a chance to talk to an ex-Rebel Spikey member and he spent quite a long time sharing his experiences being in the rebels and what it was like being an outlaw biker, what their day-to-day life was like, why he wanted to live on the fringes of society and all that. And then to balance that up, oh, he and he also had some very choice words about the new, new biker gangs um, and their lack of loyalty to each other. So all that kind of informed the novel. And then to kind of balance it out, I spent a day um uh, shadowing a police officer out at a PCYC out west and that was amazing because I'd worked with police youth officers when I was at the refuge but I hadn't had the chance to just observe and then to ask questions. I'm sure he was sick of me by the end of the day <laughs> asking a million and one questions but, um, you know, I was able to say, well, why did you join the police and and what is it that that you, why were you drawn to the PCYC? Because I want, I knew I wanted a police officer in the book but I wanted him to be like the police I'd met. Yes. who were hardworking, mm. genuinely wanted to do good, didn't always mm. get it right, but their intentions were good and they yeah. were decent people and they were the experiences that I had had with most police. I understand not everybody does, but that I wanted that on the page. I didn't want the brooding policeman. I didn't want the drunk policeman. I didn't want the, you know, yeah. I wanted to have that on the page. So I did that and then I read a heap of papers and and look at current affairs and that kind of tends to feed into my novels as well. Was the experience, the editorial experience of working with a publisher very different to self-publishing? Well, yes, it was. We actually uh, re-edited The Good Mother um, before HarperCollins put it out. So I cut... 5,000, I think this is right, cut 5,000 and added 10,000 words. And it was just to kind of make it for a broader audience, a few more uh, setting descriptions, but also just kind of um, historical stuff, threading more of that in. So, yeah, that was, look, it's just amazing to have somebody at your back and who knows what they're doing and and who will say, 
you know, in an editing note, oh, do you realise you've done this? And you go, oh, how did I even miss that? Like that's, yeah. you know, so I love it. I love feedback. I I will always take on feedback. Mm-hmm. It, it's what makes you better. And- you know what I say to people is everybody on that team is trying to make that book the best book it can be. Exactly. And and why wouldn't you take their yeah. expertise? So that that's yeah. for me and I will for, always be that way I think. I, I yeah. embrace embrace that feedback. Yeah. Ray, we're out of time. I could go on for another half an hour with you. Um, It's been such a pleasure. It really has. And thank you for sharing all of that with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.